I'm, I'm interested in this subject because you, you, I think it's a, um, it has to do with a distinctive feature of, of the Jewish uh, self-understanding um, and that I also feel very strongly, maybe a little bit too strongly, that this is an idea that we have that um, has something to, to say to the world um, today and that, and that actually would be of great significance. Um, uh, and it's, it's formative to the Jewish experience. Um, it's a critical dimension of, of who we are. Um, and um, unfortunately, in, a, in almost a propagandistic way, um, we, un, we, we assume that we've sort of uh, overcome this state called exile. All right. So let's, let's start right away with the first uh, text uh, on top of your sheets. Uh, sorry, why don't you read? If you want to read in Hebrew, you can read in Hebrew or in English, either one. Okay. So Hashem says to Abraham, Know well that your offspring shall be strangers in a land that's not theirs, although they'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will execute judgment on the nation they shall serve, and in the end they shall go free with great wealth. Okay, so tell me something. Um, what's the context for this? Does anyone know? Right, so it's the covenant that God made with Abraham. Okay, the covenant between the pieces. And uh, what, what does this constitute here, this covenantal... Well, what, what might you call it? How would you term this statement here that God is making to Abraham? Is it a statement? Is it a threat? What, what would you call it? It's a prediction. It's a... Promise. It's a promise. All right. So, um, what sort of promise is it? <laughs> what sort of promise is it? Uh, promise of good things to come. Really? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I would say, I, yeah, I might say, you know what? Uh, you know, for this. Well, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that the Rechush Kadol is, you know, is the, you know, the. the that, that, that what the, this is really what it's all about. No, the, this is our destiny, being set out for Abraham, that you're going to be a stranger in the land, not your descendants are going to be strangers, and they're going to be oppressed. So, that, so this is interesting to me. What's the promise here? It's not, in other words, let's assume that you're right, that there is an eventual you know, you know, good ending. But along the way, that's also part of the promise. And, and, what, and what role does that serve? You know, this, this came to mind um, when, um, in, in thinking about the, the book of Shemot, of Exodus. Why, 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 did we go, why did we go into slavery? I mean, what, what would you ask? What were the question would you ask? Knowing what you know about religion, what would you, what would you ask God if you had a chance to see God and say, what? what what, what, would be, what would be the question? What do they do to deserve Yeah, what do we do to deserve this? Exactly. In other words, this is what you're starting with us? We didn't even get started. The first thing you do, ah, slavery. So, usually you assume it's a punishment. 
Right? And the promise here, you're going to be slaves in a land not your own. What did Abraham do? Abraham, he's ready to take God's message to the world and say, all right, you're going to take my message, you're going to suffer. And you can imagine a good Woody Allen routine here, you know, or someone, some Jewish comedian who would be able to turn it around. It, it just doesn't make sense. Okay. Now, just to, by the way, in the Haggadah, you remember that we lift up our cups and we say, This is what stood up, this is what stood for us and for, us and for uh, our ancestors. Uh, it goes on. In every generation, they stand up and they're not right, and, and God saves us. Okay. So then, usually people understand this is what the what stood us in good stead through the centuries. That God was always there to save us. I see that as the trajectory in the paragraph. Then it says in his commentary says the referent for this is what stood us for us and our, our ancestors is referring back to the previous paragraph in the Haggadah and the previous paragraph in the Haggadah ends with a promise to Abraham. So according to the Nitziv, what stood, what allowed us to survive was God's promise that you were going to be strangers in a land not your own. This is what stood you in good stead that I promised to make you slaves. And that that was the, going to be the, the nature of your uh, identity, this experience of, of exile. Now, it's not just that. Um, if, you, if you really look at Sefer Breshit, then you have a really interesting uh, out, uh, okay, outtake. Let's say. Um, Usually, Breshit is looked upon as the same book of the promise. What are the promises? There are two promises in Breshit that, are, that repeat themselves to each one of the patriarchs. What does God say to Abraham in the first right? right? That he's going to be blessed. Give you the land. And what else? Children. Children. Progeny, right? And the land. Okay, so it's seen as the book of the promise. True. Right? The land. But, isn't it interesting? Actually, and the Ramban points this out in his in his commentary early early in, in Genesis. Uh, he is, the, and, and it's so interesting that it's the Ramban because he's the great lover of the land. If, if you can call any of the early commentaries Zionists, you can call the Ramban. The Ramban was the first one to articulate the notion that there was a mitzvah to live in the land of Israel, Aliyah, and that conquest and, and, and settlement of the land was a mitzvah. That's the Ramban's uh, innova- innovative reading. So, um, nevertheless, the Ramban classifies Breshit as the book of exile. Why? It starts with the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, Cain is exiled, Noah, the Tower of Babel, spread, Abraham has to leave the land, Isaac's the only one who stays, Jacob has to leave the land, Joseph has to leave the land, and in the end, everybody has to leave the land. So, Think about this. Exile is the condition of our ancestors as they were defined, as they begin. It's the introduction to Judaism. Bereshit is programmatic for the Jewish experience. It's the formative Jewish experience. It's probably... 
the first thing we do. What does God say to Abraham? The first thing, lech lecha. We're going to come back to that at the end. In a way, in other words, you have to leave your homeland to go to the land. But no, but 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 all right. So Abraham is sent into exile from his home. Exile precedes the entry into the land. Usually, you're in. You know, exile means. Usually, we, what, how do we understand exile? We were sovereign. We had a Beit HaMikdash. The Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, and then we went into exile. But if you take Lechlecha at the start, Abraham had to experience an exile in order to be able to come into the land. It was almost like it was uh, essential for him to acquire the land. He had to go through an exile himself. Number one, the Jews become a people. Where? In Egypt. Or either in Egypt or at Sinai. I mean, you have your choice. You know, Hayom Hazen Niyet Ala'am, it could be Sinai, but all right, you know, in Egypt. Um, and, and there's what I call the inconvenience of history that the Torah, the Torah in, in, in incorporates. Here you have a Torah, you know, you want the Torah, our book, we want to say. So what does it do? It tells the whole story. It says that when Abraham came, there were people living in the land. Usually, when you tell the story of your national history, the land is yours. You're born in the land. There's a mythic connection between you and the land. Instead, the Torah tells us, no, there were people living there. Like to, as if an advertisement. In fact, that's how I, I, I now understand the Pesach in, in, in Lech Lecha here. says, 12. It says... As follows, and it's the source of a lot of controversy. It says here, Vayag, um, no, that's not it, not 12. Um, mistake. Uh, oh, here it is. Yeah, yeah, here it is. It's in 12.6 here. Vayavor Avram Ba'aret, Ad Mekom Shechem, Ad Eilon Moreh. So Abraham passed through the land. And then it says, Vahaknani Az Ba'aret. And the Canaanites were then in the land. This is a a crux for Ibn Ezra because what you know the problem here the problem is that it seems as if it says the Canaanites were then in the land implying that the person writing this is in there at a time when yeah. from Ur to Haran No, then he comes, right, then he comes from Haran to Eretz Yisrael. He goes all the way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what happens. I mean, at least as we, as we have, I mean, Lech Lecha begins already telling us the story that he left from Ur, he went to Haran, and then, and here we have him entering into the land at the beginning of Lech Lecha. But he has to leave Haran. Yeah, yeah, all right. All right, so the point is, the Ibn Ezra intimates without saying explicitly that if it says Vahaknani Az Ba'aretz, it means that the person who, the divine person writing this verse, was writing when there was no long, when there were no longer any Canaanites in the land, because they were then in the land. Now, when were there no longer any Canaanites in the land? After, after Joshua. So the Ibn Ezra, without saying it, he doesn't. He says Vamaskil Yidom. He doesn't. Right. 
Right. He doesn't. He doesn't say explicitly because he doesn't want to tread in in uh, heretical uh, ground. So he says, "You might, uh, if you understand what it means, be quiet." You know, because uh, what it means is that this pasuk was written after Moses. All right. But I, I have another shot. Vaknani as Baaretz was written to emphasize that when Abraham came to the land. It was not a Jewish land. It was not an Israelite land. It was not his land. It belonged to somebody else. So therefore, the Pasuk actually is sticking it to us and saying, you are people who don't belong here. God told you to go there and you had to take it away from someone else. And everybody, and because it's in the Tanakh, everybody will know it. It's an advertisement. Listimatem. Right? The first Rashi. You stole the land. That's what I call the inconvenience of history, because if it would be better, it would have been better if it didn't say, you know. We have a better claim. Although claims are not based, I mean, it, it, it also points to the ridiculousness of, of making a claim based on ancient history. Right? Claims have to do with political, political uh, arrangements. That, I mean, you can, you can, what you can do is you can claim an attachment to the land, a dream. An attachment. We have an attachment. But you can't claim that it belongs to you necessarily. It belongs to you by agreement or something or other. You know, it's not, it's not, so, not so simple. Right? Or by force. Or by force. Yeah, all right, right, right. That's right. All right. But, but it's not, but, but the Torah sort of, you know, doesn't help our case is the point that I'm making. So it makes the case even more difficult. So, all right. So we, we are, and I, I think we're unique in this way. The, the French don't say, you know, we weren't here. The French, as far as they're concerned, were you know there from time immemorial. They were in. They were the national uh, element of what we call you know the Gauls, the, right, the France. Um, I don't know about you know Rome. Well, Rome is Romulus and what were the what were the two called? Uh, Ramus. Ramus and Romulus. I mean, so you have the founding of Rome is consistent with and, 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 and continuous with the development of the people who live there. Right? And, and, and I, I don't hear the Romans telling the story about the people who lived there before. We take pains to make sure that everybody knows that there were people living there before us and that the land had an, had another, had an indigenous population. Sort of like the American story, you know? We tried to wipe that out, but, you know, unfortunately now we know, you know, there was a population here. There were people here. So it doesn't mean that the land doesn't belong to us. You know, I have, there's a professor at UCLA who apparently tells his students, you know, that they're, uh, in, that, that they're usurpers, you know, invaders. And, and he's still teaching at UCLA, I can't understand, but, it, uh, but he teaches uh, world arts and culture, so he has a different understanding. You know, but he, he actually told the students, a student told me, because he was making the same point regarding Israel, that he believes that we Americans who live in California should give it back. The Indians. But that occurs all over. The difference is that usually national stories do not talk about the people who lived before. Usually they, they, they cover it up, they begin their history from another point. We begin our history from the fact that we didn't, wasn't ours. Eh? And before we went there, we went into exile. Oh, very strange. Torah, where is the Torah given? In, in Sinai, in a no place. Right? In fact, uh, Bible scholars claim 
for instance, linguistically, that Sefer Yoshua is continuous with Sefer Devarim, and that, and it's an interesting point, that the Torah purposely ends. I mean, you don't have to make any sort of critical assessment. The Torah purposely ends before the people enter the land. It would have been nice if after you start with Breshit and the promise of the land, the, fa- the Chumash ends with the arrival. And after Khan. Right? Then we can sing. And then what if, can you imagine Oz Yashir when we came into the land? We don't have an Oz Yashir. What's the holiday that we celebrate for coming into the land? No? You know? There's no holiday. Sukkot. Sukkot is the holiday connected to to the land and more than you know in any other one it's true and Sukkot and we I, I, well I don't want to get it so of course but, but in Sukkot it's the, if you read the Sukkim it says be careful be careful when you get there and, and you begin to claim it's my power my strength I, I conquer this land it's mine so the Torah seems to be pushing you forward and pulling you backwards simultaneously that's so, that's so interesting right? and of course the Babylonian Talmud became authoritative, not the Yerushalmi, not the Palestinian Talmud. So exile sort of defined us. I wrote here a note, we are the people of exile. Most of our history was spent in exile. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that the land is bad, but it's a cat. But all I'm saying is, it's a, it's a, in the, I don't know how to say this, because exile gets such bad press. So, in, it's not, I don't know, it's not, it's not equivalent to, to what's bound up in the land, because that, that carries with it a certain weight. There are mitzvot that are contingent upon our living in the land. There are p- possibilities of fulfillment in the land that are not possible outside the land. But standing against it is another very powerful experience that we were given. We were given. And that's my claim. And how, how did that inform who we became? Because right. it, it, our character was developed in that, in, in, in exile. Our culture was, you know, it, it's, it's so interesting. But well, we were always striving to get there. Right, right. You know, so Rosenzweig, I don't know if we're not going to, I didn't print the Rosen, Rosenzweig says that the land always was powerful as, as, while we were yearning for it. So the exilic experience was critical because the problem is once you get there, you sort of take it for granted. And you no longer long for something. It's the same thing with Mashiach. You know, uh, my friend tells me the same thing with peace now. You know, anytime you want now, you end the striving. And the trick is to keep striving and not to imagine that it's here. We want Mashiach now, you know, sort of, uh, all right, Mashiach, it's all over. What, you know, what you... What's that? Right, right. So, so, yeah, all right. So the point, so, so perhaps... The, the tradition gave us the dynamic of exile and redemption that are linked to one another. It's not that one overcome. See, in other words, we look upon redemption as the solution to exile and as the, the culmination, the, the, the end of exile. Whereas what I'm proposing is that exile and redemption have to be in constant tension with one another in order to produce the people with the characteristics that I'm going to outline as we, as we move ahead. Go ahead. And that's the divine plan. And that, that's, okay, that's, that seems to be the divine plan. Exactly. Exactly. Now look here for an Israeli um, 
sort of a riff on exile. So if uh, you want to read the second text, uh, Robert, you want to read the... Oh. Ronnie, I'm sorry, Ronnie. The, Ronnie. the, 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 the Chaim Hazaz, yes, everything. Ronnie, yes. <laughs> everything positive <coughs> nations possess <coughs> have they taken over from Israel except the government of exile. Exile is not just one long tale of decline and fall, but one of heroism, not just one of ugliness and disgrace, but of glory and credit, <coughs> not just one of humiliation and slavery, but freedom, generous and inspiring, unparalleled in human history. <coughs> exile is an experience that stands on equal footing with the revelation of Sinai and settlement in the promised land. Now, this is a speech being given by Kibbutznik in Hazaz's short story. And uh, can, you, can you tell, that what's the tone of this speech? Because you don't have the context, so maybe um, uh, you can't feel it. We talk about settlements, he's talking about the settlements now. No, no, this is written in the 40s. 1940s. <coughs> but for it, go ahead, continue. You want to read a but for but it? it is, but, for, but for it, Israel would have been reduced to the dead level of all nations, like any other people that have nothing else but a country and a government, wrapped up in their four cubits of mundane, time-killing existence and lowest common culture. What, what they, they need, need, meaning what the, all the world needs is... What they need is exile, not revolutions, international or league of nations, but exile, plain and simple, that will refine, purify, and teach them to understand the meaning of the universe, of man, of fellowship, compassion, truth, and justice. No, <clears throat> there's no hope for them until they go down into exile, trudge from place to place and savor the tribulations of persecution and turn their attention to the Torah they carry with them. So, how it, this is an Israeli view of exile. It's sort of, it's, it's dripping with, right, with cynicism. Sarcastic. <coughs> the tragedy of exile depicted by, by Zionism as the, you know, the, this burden that we carry uh, we uh, and and all we can bo- all we can manage to say is oh isn't you know isn't exile wasn't this so wonderful while well, the nations beat us up and this is all that they're missing and and you know when he uh, in the end when he says um, and turn their attention to the Torah they carry with them I mean it's uh, filled with uh, 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 sarcasm uh, right. All they need is some humiliation. Isn't that all the world needs? So the attitude among Zionists was that exile had to be overcome. Not, I mean, any of you have, have, have any of you read, you know, or, or know something about Ben Gurion? You know, Ben Gurion, in uh, while he was prime minister, there was a weekly Bible study in the prime minister's house every Motzei Shabbat. Now the point of Ben-Gurion was that the creation of the State of Israel was a return to the Biblical period. And we have successfully skipped over 2,000 years of Jews walking around with with bent backs, deformed by history and by their own passivity in response uh, to the the normal currents of history. And the creation of the state of Israel was going to normalize this abnormal people. Right? So let's forget about two thousand years of what, he, what they call diaspora, exile, whatever it was. Right? That was our deformation, and we're going to be reconstituted. 
in this land. Uh, now, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm over-dramatizing it. I, I want you to hear this because the, it's not all bad. In other words, the Jewish people needed some healing. History wasn't kind to them. Uh, what's his name? Bialik's poem, Ba'ira Haregah, after the kitchen of Pogrom, you should read the poem, talks about how Jewish men stood behind the lattice watching as their wives were raped by the Cossacks. Because they couldn't do anything. What's the name of the poem? In the city of slaughter. Ba'ira Haregah. And so, so it was a call to arms. The Zionists were calling people to arms because they had con- they condemned Jewish history and Judaism. That Judaism yielded people who were were reconciled to their suffering. That's what Hazaza said. We understood suffering as God's hand. It's purposeful. It's the exile. That's what it's all about. And insofar as we are the people of exile, we should sell it to the world because it's the key. You know, that's what Hazaza is playing that theme. He doesn't want to see anything positive in it. Same thing with Ben-Gurion. I, I claim it's a fundamental mistake, meaning the following. Indeed, in order to create the state of Israel, Bialik is right. People had to take up guns. Jews had to defend themselves. They didn't know how to defend themselves. You know, Rav Kook, there's a passage in Rav Kook that sort of frightened me because it's, you know, it's, it's sort of historically... You know, he, was, he, he was deterministic, but he says that as... That the you know what was what was what was history? Jewish history was sort of um, uh, determined by God, set up by God, so that the Jews would be removed from history. The Jews would be removed from history, and that po- politics would be the domain of excuse me the goyim. We they ruled us, but that was the bargain. We, in other words, we, God did us a great favor. Because we didn't have to kill anybody. Let them kill. It's Goyshenachas. You know, sort of that's how he presents it. And then when the Mashiach comes, there'll be a new history. A history in which politics will be carried out without there needing to be power, abuse of power. I mean, do you, do you know any such politics? I mean, I mean have you seen such politics? I mean, it's a, it's a problem, by the way. Because then the people who claim that it's Messianic times and connected to Rav Kook's teachings... You know, they do a lot of bad things in the name of the Mashiach that, you know, that Rav Kook was writing about. Because such a time... I, I mean, it, it's very problematic when you set up the Jewish people that way. So in some ways, Ben-Gurion was playing the same game. There was the Jewish people of exile, and now we are the new people. You know, other Zionists in the already 19th century were writing about the new Jew. You know, overcoming the, you know, what was it, the 90-pound weekly... That was that was a self that was an image that Jews had internalized, you know, a sort of an anti-Semitic image that Jews felt about their about their bodies, and Zionism was going to produce a new body. Okay. Now, having said that, let me give you a sort of a counter reading. Uh, I translated a, a column that an Israeli journalist named Bet Michael. Bet Michael is a very perceptive and uh, uh, how should I say? Uh, uh, pers- uh, someone, someone of great uh, sort of ironic uh, qualities uh, in his writing. So you don't have it on your sheets. I'll, I'll read to you this little translation. Um, and, and he comes, Bet Michal comes from a religious Zionist background. And he's a, he's a critic. Okay, so he writes as follows. Each monarchy in antiquity had its people, its land, its gods, its religion, and its temples. I'm sure you've heard this before. 
So it was for them all. Philistines, Babylonians, the Canaanite peoples, Chaldeans, Persians, Greeks, Romans. And when the monarchy was defeated, the temples destroyed and the idols shattered. The people as well as the religion disappeared together with them. There is not even a single example of an ancient religious people, religion or people, that continued to survive after it experienced the total destruction of its religious and cultic center. Judaism alone withstood the challenge. Only this dinosaur succeeded to survive. Not in the least was it because of the merit of the trans-material religious mobility that it adapted. Trans-material, it's my translation, I'm not a professional translator, but I don't know if it's right. Trans-material religious mobility that it adapted. Through its cumulative experience, Judaism learned that cultural and spiritual assets are seven times longer lasting than real estate. So, in contrast to the Zionist total rejection of the positive dimensions of an exilic experience, Bet Michael objectively identifies, I mean, at the end, I mean, he makes his point, but the objective is a historical reading. Jews are the only people from antiquity, from antiquity and from that, from, you know, from that part of the world, that, who, that survived, whose culture survived and is a continuation of the ancient culture. The Greeks are not continuing Homeric culture, last time I looked. Right? It's an ancient culture, it was a great culture. And that's why why? Because our cultural assets were not grounded in territory. Our cultural assets were trans-territorial. And so already I'm anticipating the point I want to make. We can close up and have early you know, dismissal that this is, the, this is the secret of our survival. Because if you're linked to a place and they come and they destroy your place, then your peoplehood is destroyed together with a place that's destroyed. And you just, what happened in antiquity, what happened to Canaanites, Yerushites, you know, Yebus, Jebusites, all the seven nations, whatever. They were conquered. Every nation, the Assyrians conquered, the Babylonians conquered, the Assyrians, the Persians conquered, the Babylonians. And every culture was swallowed up by the conquering culture. But they never had aspirations to go back. Uh, all right, but, but you see, but the aspirations to go back are linked also to not having it. Where does the aspiration to go back come? Because in the initial promise, we had to anticipate getting there. We didn't start there. The people left Egypt and God said, you're going to get there. So we started our peoplehood not with the, the what do you call it, the self-confidence and the self-assurance of the knowledge that, uh, that we are it. We're not it. We're not yet there. We don't even know there's an uncertainty about our ability to get there. Because we're a bunch of slaves. How are we going to get there? Oh, God says you're going to get there. Yeah, right. Look at, look at the psychology of how we were constructed as a people. Not to be arrogant and say it's ours, <laughs> we're going to get it, but to hope for it. Hope. Very critical. Because in, in cases where you didn't learn hope and you had it all, and you lose it, you also lose hope. Not only do you lose your... I mean, it, it's true psychologically. Look at, the, look at Muslims. I mean, it's, a very, it's, it's, it's very indicative uh, of, of, a, of a type of theology that's, that's built on the fact of your success. 
you start, you know, you, you have it in, in certain Christian denominations as well, that your wealth and uh, your standing is an indication of God, that God loves you. Now, so we, we Jews, we're ipcha, you know, upside down. So we say, your suffering is an indication that God loves you, really. You know, and think about that. It's terrible. But on the other hand, there's genius to it. You know? And I think about what we were taught. And we get, up, we get all upset about it. No, but there's a genius to that. Because it prevents your sense of self-assurance that I don't have to do anything because I'm blessed. So what, ha- what happens to Islam? We know this. That when Islam, when everything's going well, Islam is very generous and it's, and, and there's a, it's nice. It makes nice. When it becomes, you know, when, it, when it's dominated, it explodes. It, the world isn't supposed to be like that. We're not supposed to be dominated. We're supposed to be the masters. You know? So they need a little dose of exile. That that's the reality of humanity. By the way, it, it, it's an existential reality. All of you start life in exile. Someone gives birth to you. You get exiled out of the womb before you even have a chance to make a choice. So psychologically, if, we could, if people can adjust to, their, to the nature of what it means to be a human being, nature of human being is always sort of there's a, there's a sense of homelessness, of being at home and being homeless simultaneously. The fact the Greeks have survived in their, in their nation. Right. Yes, but not but, but not but not but they're not continuing the culture of the past. That's the point I'm making. In other words, here we are, and 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 this book and this way of life, it's changed clearly. But the language, this is the point. If Moshe Rabbeinu were here today, he couldn't understand most probably the Gemara is right. He wouldn't understand the nature of a halachic argument, but he would be able to catch a few of the Hebrew words that we're speaking. I don't know what accent, whether he knew the Sardit, Ashkenazit, whatever. But that, that see, that, that's, that's fascinating. Whatever, wh- whatever we did, and, 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 he w- and he would, you know, again, the mitzvot were not exactly the same, but there would be, oh, people, people would say things. Arami, Ovedavi, oh, Moshe would say, I, I, I said that. You know? Look at that. So where do you know it's true that, I said before, Homer is universal, but there's no people living homerically. So there may be there may be some right. There may be some indigenous peoples. You're right. What you're making me think is that once you have gotten there, once you've done it and you finally got to the place, then all those mitzvot. This is the point of view of people here in Tel and not in Yerushalayim. I'm not necessary anymore because in a way we've got there, we've done it, and now we can be like the Greeks. All right. So the so that's where the counterforce is. The counterforce is that the exile acts as a measure against your sense of of, of, of total self-aggrandizement uh, and the sense that you've gotten there because that's that's, a, that's a, an opposing force to instill, and that's the first point I'm going to make, some national humility. Some national humility. All right, I, I, let me give you a halachic framework for a moment. All right? There's an argument in the Gemara. Kedusha Vishona Kitshalashata Lavo Olo. All right? And same, all right. There are two sanctifications of the land. 
one by the Israelite people that came out of Egypt, and one by all right uh, uh, by by Joshua, and one by Ezra by Ole Babel, those who came left Babylonia. So the, the halachic decision that's arrived at is that the first sanctification by those who came with Joshua was annulled. It was only sanctify the land for its time, and then it was annulled. While the second sanctification remains in force forever. Right? Why? With regard to the first part, I can explain it more logically. The second part is a little, little bit of a puzzle. But this is clear. Conquest, and this is the point I want to make, conquest is undone by another conquest. If your attachment is one, I conquered this land, so then comes along the next one to conquer the land, and then it's mine. That's what I'm saying. That one culture conquered another culture. And that was the mode of claiming title and of a continuation. And one empire swallowed up another empire. Right? The innovation of Ezra was to enter the land without conquering the land. Ezra entered the land because Cyrus sent them and created a Jewish settlement that was recognized sort of internationally by the ruler of the time without claiming title so that the culture de developed without sovereignty. There were no kings in the second temple until the end, until the Maccabees. And that was a travesty. That didn't work. Interesting. What century is Ezra? Fifth century. Fifth century. Right? So, right. so there you have that. That that there's it, it, it's a very interesting experiment, and the beginnings of being in the land and developing the culture without necessarily ruling. Right? So that's that, that's that already gives you a little bit of of room here. Exile in the land. Right? How can you be in the land and not in charge? But you right? It's possible. I'm, by the way, I'm, this is not a political program. I'm not suggesting this for Israel. Right? And neither am I suggesting that we should make an announcement to the you know, other people, look, we are the people of exile. You know, that's not the, the issue. Is I want to bring exile to bear on our self-understanding so that it, it actually gives us some, I think, some breathing. We'll see in a moment. This is what I want to say. I, what I want to, uh, when, just to finish up the point with Bet Michael, he ends off by saying you know, that we were able to live without real estate so I, I, I want to say that unfortunately, uh, this is a, a comment on, the, on, on sort of this current generation and, uh, and uh, who, who we have become, um, I, I, I think, and I think Leibovitch said it once before, that we have been transformed from Am HaSefer, the people of the book, to Am HaAretz. B'Shnei Muvanav. In both of its Tarti Mashma. It means Am HaAretz, real estate agents. And I'm Aretz in the sense of not being learned. So that, that in other words, who are we? What, what does it mean to be Amha Sefer? When you come to the land, don't forget your substance. Otherwise, you're going to become identified with the land. It's going to define you. And you get eaten up by it. Eretz ochelet yoshvehahi. It consumes you. It consumes you. Because it becomes... It be, what? Because the temptation of power is so strong that even when you have ideals, it overwhelms you. So you need a counterforce. Exile is the counterforce. It keeps you honest. You know, I'm here, but I know, I, 
you know, it's like I, it's, it's, it's like going into life and remembering your childhood. And how many people get older and they forget where they came from? Of course, they become, oh, I'm young, you know, look who he is. He forgot where he came from. How important, it's very important to remember. Remember your friends. Remember who they are. Remember the modest circumstances in which you began. You were naked when you began. You know, that's the Mishnah. Remember that. You were naked. You know, now you're Gantamacher. You know? Okay. So, what are the positive dimensions of exile? One, I said this already, national humility. Right? It prevents the development of hubris that brings the arrogant down. So, humility is a function of the moderation of power, of landlessness. Exile... Here, this is a summary of what I, I said. Exile is a dynamic counterforce to landedness and power. The Jew lives the dialectic, right, of exile and homeland. So much so, look at the text on the back, page number four. It's in Hebrew as well, underlined in the Hebrew sheet that you have. Right, so. When I saw this, you know, I knew. I said to myself, you know, there's something, some wisdom here that that was known. Shnei Luchot Habritz was written by Isaiah Horowitz. Anyone familiar with this sefer? You are familiar. With it. I, I want to tell you that it, it's first of all, there's an English translation of the first section that is pre- that prepared by, uh, by, in, in part of the, cla- the, the the series Classics of Western Spirituality that's uh, published by Paulus Press. So. This Shnelochot Habrit is encyclopedic. It's an encyclopedic work. It's huge. And the copy that I originally had was my grandfather's. Uh, Sholem says there were two works responsible for, for spreading Kabbalah to the masses. Among the Sephardim, it was a work called Chendat Yamin, very interesting work. And Adnan, the Israeli Nobel laureate, called his son Chendat. Because the Hebrew, the was so. And if you read Days of War of Adnan, in Hebrew especially, there's more quotes, but even in English, many quotes from the Chendat Yamin. It's a, it's a, uh, a uh, how should I say it? Uh, it's like a um, uh, primer for. What's it, primer? It's a, and also an anthology of Jewish practice for all the holidays, Shabbat and all the holidays, Chendat Yamin, including the creative practices of the circle of mystics. Who emanated from Tzvat. Right? And this was this was all, this was spread among Sephardim in their homes and through reading this work, which is more popular. So you don't have to know esoteric Kabbalah. They were there. Tfilot, for instance. Right? Some of you might have it not. See, I knew why I saw this. Some of you might have a state of two before. No one knew that before. It's a crea- in other words, it's an innovation of this is an innovative work of prayer, piyut, I- interpretation. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Four volumes. It's a massive work that uh, not enough work not enough work's done on it. Uh, part of it is that there are the claims, and it's most probably true, that there are Sabbatean hints in the work, but if you read it, it wouldn't be evident to you. So its value as a as a transmitter of tradition is far overwhelms any potential heresy that you might be hinted in the book that, that that's hinted. Okay. For the Ashkenazim the work that spread an attack on Kabbalah was Shnei Lachot Habrit. 
Isaiah Horowitz. He was a rabbi in Prague. He went to Prague in the city. He went to Jerusalem in Prague in the 16th century. He collected information practices, and it was actually one of the first works that I read that introduced me. Uh, I asked Art Green. You know, Art Green is a teacher of Chassidut, so I asked Art, you know, how can I, what should I do to start studying Kabbalah? He says, it was a great suggestion. It, uh, the, uh, among other things, the work also, uh, in addition to the theology at the beginning, there are sections on all the holidays. So the section on Shabbat, called Masechet Shabbat, and I had a Chabruta, and we studied every week. And what was wonderful about it, I didn't understand everything, but the context always was the framework for observance that came from Halakha, from Talmud, that I was familiar with. So even when he got to the Kabbalah, it had a context, and it was easy. To, it was easier to enter, and it was also not, not. I mean, you needed to know some elements of the system, but it wasn't esoteric in the sense of studying, you know, the, the Zoharic symbolism. It was more down to earth and right and spiritual. So, Horowitz, Isaiah Horowitz, Horowitz, and you have you have the English translation of the first section and the last section of the work or um, uh, almost the last section is, are his Drashot of Rashat and those are also translated in three volumes uh, it's available, Munk translated that and that's available okay. so, but this is my translation so it's also, it's always inferior alright, so um, maybe, uh, uh, Yaakov, you want to read The Person Who Lives I'm sorry, this is the second portion of this one? I'll, I'll re- you read it in English, on the, oh, back, okay. on the back sheet. The back sh- Wait, do, do you have a fourth sheet? Uh, yeah, yeah, I oh, she, there's no fourth sheet? Uh, I have, I oh, let me see what, what was done. <coughs> oh, re- oh, my God. No, I don't wait. Oh, no, no, here. Wait, you don't have... The, 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 the first collection of sheets has one, two, does it have a fourth side? No, I have a You have a two, it would get distributed. Alright, so why don't you share it? No, oh, wait, one second. Oh no, she didn't, wait. She, yeah, she did. One second, no, 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 no. Yeah, she added that other one. Okay. All right. So why don't you share here? Share this. I'm sorry. Um, do I have another one? I apologize to you. Uh, here, here's another one. One second. One second. Let me see if I, I may have in in my pile. I I I, I left them at home. She didn't realize they were double sided. Um, uh, here, here, no, no, don't, I won't, no, Oti, I had a Rebbe, he said, Otiot Machimot, the letters make you, here, 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 one second. Here, why don't you use that, and here, just make sure, just be current to me, here's another one, okay, and, okay. Right, so Yaakov, why don't you read? Okay, the person who lives in Eretz Yisrael must also recall the name Cana, which indicates servitude and submission. Okay, so, oh, go ahead, so what does that mean? How do you understand that? Uh, wow. In other words, uh, go ahead, let, let, let's see what else. The he, he, principle he that emerges in an emphatically contrary way 
that in the land that the Lord God derived must be more of a humble servant as was expressed by King David I'm a stranger in the land right? that is precisely All right, be, let, let's sort of anticipate why is that so why is that so because he's the king's palace alright so this is a this is an, a, an inversion of our usual claim Horowitz says what does it mean that Eretz Yisrael is the holy land it's a lesson for all people who come to a land that land is not owned by the people who live there. It's God's land. That's what holy land means. So no one can claim ownership. And when, especially when you are in the holy land, that's when you know it more emphatically than anywhere else. Beca- and, and he also understands, since this is the promised land, your tendency will be to see it as yours. Precisely for that reason, there's this pushback. Ger anochi ba'aretz. Dafka ba'aretz ani ger. Continue. See what he says? He goes on. This is precisely. Uh, that, that is precisely the matter referred to by God when he promised Abraham regarding the Egyptian slavery. Your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not their own. According to our explanation, it is understood that you will be strangers, strangers in Egypt. And that, that is. is and that is the simple sense of, of foreigners since they will reside in a land not their own as slaves to, 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 Pharaoh. to Pharaoh. However, thereafter, they will marry to become strangers in their own land. As David said, I'm a stranger in the land. And then, sing praises, servants of the Lord. The principle that is derived is that those who dwell in the land must, as consequence of their being in the state of submission, act like strangers and not make the main object to settle the land in a permanent, steadfast manner. This is the meaning of you are strangers and residents with me. Right. When you want to settle in tranquility and security, then become Gerim. So it's a it's a spiritual state. Right? You're physically there, you're in the land, the land is yours, but spiritually understand you are not you are not in control. Right? You have to sort of have a have a deeper understanding. It's not a political. It's not a political claim at all, right? That's not what Horowitz wants to understand. What if, if the the your relationship to the land cannot be exhausted in material in a material way? Otherwise, God wouldn't have made such a big deal about it. If it's only about a material, see, you can say it in another way. If it's all about the fact that you're going to be in, in control of a piece of territory, you didn't need God for that. You could go. You could go to the you know, to the school of all nations, and everybody knows you have an army, you have a king, you conquer the land, and everybody's happy. But that's not what the Torah came to present. The Torah came to present a different way of looking at the world, where power and control is not necessarily the, the ultimate goal. It can be a means, but it needs to be controlled. Otherwise, it's going to overwhelm you and define who you are, and that's not who you are. Your gerim, even in the land itself. Okay, so I know this is difficult. So what I want to say is that my sense of Zionism is one that embraces a consciousness of exile and its positive value, which means the land we're there, we have a state. Thank God, I I I I, I celebrate Yom Haatzmaut as a religious holiday. I believe that firmly, but at the same time. I understand that there's a counterforce that allows me to have a measured understanding 
of the significance of this so that the land doesn't become and the state doesn't become the object they're only a means the land is only a means it's not the goal Robert Soloveitchik had a way of saying this he said that the you know because why because in in uh, in Aramio in the Haggadah you know in the Haggadah we have the drasha the the uh, uh, right before we eat the meal, before the Hallel, there's a section of the Haggadah that is a homiletic exposition, right, exegesis of for, of of some verses from De- Deuteronomy. Aramio, my one, my father was a wandering Aramean, if that's the right translation, right. That passage is the confession, right. It, it's what it's what you say when you bring Bikurim, when you bring the first fruits. There's a pasuk missing. There's a verse missing from the te- from the from that whole passage, that verse reads very simply. Here, right? We read until biyad chazaka with a with a strong arm and throwing a tuya, etc., etc. Uva otot with signs and moftim with wonders. Remember, that's when what do we do when we say ototum of him right away. We begin dam svardeya. We bring the plagues. And then after the plagues, it's the, we, we sing lefichach, you know, and we sing Hallel. But it, it's not over. There's a verse. You brought us into this place. Don't you ask at your Seder, how come we don't say, we don't say the full text? We skip, we, we don't say this. So why don't we say when you brought us to this place? What would be the answer? There, I mean, there's a sort of a standard answer. Well, because in the Haggadah, we weren't really there yet, and we were reenacting our... Aha. Our way, our, our journey. All right. Or as some say, some do say that it was in the, the it was in the early seder, but after exile we took it out. I mean, there are all sorts of answers. So Rabbi Soloveitchik says the following: that the, the Haggadah is a lesson for us to understand that although Eretz Israel was our destination, it was a wonderful place. It was not our destiny. Our destiny was Sinai. Sorry, our destiny was what? Sinai. Eretz Israel was our destination, but our destiny was Sinai. And the idea was that now you understand a little bit of the flow of what happened. Before we got to the land, we got our constitution that defined who we are. So that when we came to the land, we came already prepared with the with, with the with the inner structure of how we're going to live. So that our our identity was not essentially linked to the land. A lot of the, a lot of the, the constitution was tied to the mitzvot. Yes, but the, but those are those are mitzvot that we have to perform. In other words, it's the it's sort of the observance of religious or the principles. Let's call them the values that makes this land special. It's not the land itself. That's the point. That's what the my argument is. If it were the land itself, then that would be, Soloveitchik would have said, that was our destiny. That's the goal. The goal was to go to Sinai and bring Sinai into the land. So that you live, whether, you know, if you're, you know, if you have a sense of Torah, you know, so you understand this. If you don't have a sense of Torah, so I can translate it to mean the values of what it means to be Jewish have to be brought into the land. That's a problem, by the way. One of the problems with Zionism is that Zionism felt that it achieved its goal by establishing a state. And Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of England, says there were two goals to Zionism. The first goal was to create a state. 
The second goal was to create a civil society. So the first goal was created, it's a, it's a mechanical thing. You need to create a framework. You have to build the state. Thank God we did that. And that had to be done in a revolutionary way because we had to sort of overturn the way we understood our, you know, how we played history as Jews. All right, so my point is once we did it, now we have a state, we have to go back to the fountain of Jewish experience and learning and say, what have we left behind that we need in order to make this life a Jewish life in the state of Israel? That's a, that's a question today. And that question also has to do with how Jews live in the, everywhere. I mean, how do you live as a modern Jew in the, in the world today? That seems to me a, a question that Jews are asking everywhere. Whether, they, whether in Israel or the United States. And we used to think, you see, the problem, what was a Zionist mistake? If you go to live in Israel, this is what you said before, Ron, right? right, right. You go to Israel, you solve all the problems. I'm there. Right? We used to think, you have, a, you have a, a teenager who's having trouble, send him to Israel. That'll make him Jewish. Right? And that'll solve all the issues. And Israel was the solution. But then we see young Israelis growing up, not knowing who they are. Because they have the identity of being Israelis. They don't have the substance of what that means. Like young Americans, I, my great fear always on campus is I'm going to bump into a student who was very active in Hillel, and, and I'm going to ask him, so, so why are you Jewish? And he, wouldn't know what to, and he or she wouldn't know what to say. They've been active, they, they, they like being Jewish, but they don't know what it is. They don't know what, they don't know what Judaism has added to their lives, or, or, or what claim it has on them that sort of compels them to, to, to pursue something. We've talked about yearning, striving, dreaming. What are the dreams, the Jewish dreams that Jews have? So this was one of the dreams that we had because in that dream place we can create the ideal society or we can work towards it. I mean, you don't achieve the ideal, you work towards it. But that always hangs over you. So that's what I'm saying. There is this dynamic of something hanging over you that reminds you you're not done yet. Now, it's, it, it's a tough way to live. But I believe that that's the excitement of being Jewish. We engaged, we made a covenant with God that we're going to live a tough life. Tough not meaning oppressive. That's the, it doesn't mean oppressive. Tough means there are goals, there are standards. There are things that we, we're not, we, we can't get uh, you know, lazy, complacent. We can't feel we, you know... And I see it, I see it everywhere. America, you know, I, I, I see mediacronization taking over Jew, Jews. I'm going to get to this in a moment. Let me, let me move on. Okay, so the first thing is the measure of the, the sense of humility, of counterforce to the arrogance of power that grows from being in the land. Exile is a reminder, it's a, it's a force of, 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 the, of the introduction of value beyond merely holding the land itself, number one. Number two, cultural creativity. Jews have been an extremely creative force, and here I quote um, a, a book from the 80s by John Murray Cudahy, God, I have to move on a little bit, but I'm going to move on more quickly. Now I'm enjoying, I mean we're learning a little bit along the way, but there's a lot, uh, Cudahy wrote a book called The Ordeal of Civility, and it was about how three Jews changed the modern world, Strauss, Lady Strauss, uh, Einstein, no, uh, Marx, Marx, and Freud. All right. What? Uh, a, 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 a Catholic uh, sociologist named John Murray Cuddy, the ordeal of the ordeal of civility. Now, one of the points that he makes—it's a problematic book in some way—but but but one of the points he makes is, why were the Jews successful in, as sort of successful cultural entrepreneurs? I mean, they shaped modern culture. I can give you the anti-Semitic version of this and from a Muslim text. No, there's a Muslim text by Sayyid Qutb, 
he was hanged by Nasser in 1966. He spent a couple. Of, he was one of the he was one of the theologians of the Brotherhood, right? So he spent a couple of years in the United States, and he was he was um, what do you call that? A guess at what he saw the corruption of Western civilization, and he put it he, he laid it all at the feet of the Jews, right? It was a Jew who developed a, a, a theory of rampant sexuality, Freud. It was a Jew who promoted the uh, uh, sort of the uh, essence of materialism, Marx. And it was another Jew who destroyed the family. That was Emil Durkheim, who was the son of a rabbi, soci- who really created the field of sociology. Son of a rabbi. Right. So Jews did so relative. Right? Yeah, so relative, right. So, 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 what, so what Karihi says is that because, and I'm going to develop this theory in a number of ways, because we were not the mainstream, so we always looked at society from the margins. It gave us a vantage point that allowed us to develop a critique. Out of the critique rose a new way of doing things. So we never were, we never were allowed to become uh, rusty. Right? Because we were always on edge. We were always on the edge. So rust comes about because you get settled, you get a little, you know, you get a little wet, and, and, you, and you lose your, your movement. Right? We were moving all the time. And so from the margins, we looked at society and we came up with new ideas. Right? So, so one of the central features, in, think about the first generation of, of American uh, Jewish novelists. Right? They created an American literature. Philip Roth, the, you know, saw Bell children of immigrants. You know, uneasy. They lived with unease. They were not fully at home. That's the point. Who are the best writers today? I think Jewish writers, former Orthodox Jews. You know, Shalom. What's his name? Alfred. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you have these. You know, all the writers, all women, Jewish women, because women also women. Women are marginal. You know, it's a question of power. People who don't who don't have an investment in maintaining the, you know, the central power, right, are able to be critics. When you have an investment, you know, you want to silence the critics, and that's part of the, so that's part of the dynamic of exile and home and be, and redemption. You know, when you're there, you want to keep everyone. You want to say, "I'm here," Shh. but when you're not there, you want to make a lot of noise, right? So the so cultural creativity, restlessness. Robert Soloveitchik stressed the sense of independence. Uh, he said, one learns, he told us, not to sing the song of the majority. So here, I want to say, the, I want to just sort of riff on this a little bit, and what I'm telling you is that if, you, we wanna, if we want to survive as an American Jewish community, I think what's essential is develop a sense of what I call psychic marginality. Because we don't want anti-Semitism. You know, some Jews will tell you, yeah, of course we're marginal, of course they hate us, so they push us to the margin. Thank God, you know, so, so when, I, when I present this, so people say, so Chaim, what do you want? Do you want us to be hated again so we're, we don't have any power and we're, you know, I said, God forbid. I, I look upon my own experience, maybe that's a problem that I project from my own experience. I grew up in America, but I grew up in a modern Orthodox home. So I grew up with a sense that I was a part of and apart from simultaneously. That's where I was celebration was going. You ate the culture, you, meaning you, you read, you, you really you celebrated uh, uh, literature, and at the same time, you were not fully I- I- integrated. You were not fully assimilated. There was a sense of resistance. And you, and you called it psychic what? Marginality. Marginality. Right? 
So that's now. Uh, is this a part of and apart from? I think. In other words, I, I, I think. I think it's very important. Next. All right. So first we have modesty. Then we have this sort of cultural creativity and a sense of independence and marginality. Next point is that exile raised us in an, ex- in an experience where there was no central authority linked to the government. And therefore, we, be, were, invested, we were not invested in, the, in protecting the status quo, as I said, and we were open to criticism, to self-criticism, and we developed a tolerance for diverse ideas. Jews thrived on argument. Only, I mean, only, it seems to me, only Jewish teaching, only Jewish religious teaching, of all religious teachings, would have the nerve, sort of the, the audacity, to say, Eilu ve'eilu divreilu kilchayim. This and that are both the words of the living God. Uh, suggesting that there are multiple truths. In other words, all other religious traditions would say there's one truth and we have the one truth. So we have a tradition that says, oh, maybe not, this, this is true and that's true. How could that be? God is one, there needs to be one truth. I mean, in other words, we introduce into the very nature of our self, of our self-understanding the possibility of the other. My, my friend, who, who teaches at Hellenism University, teacher and friend, Menachem Fish, wrote a book called Rational Rabbis. And in this book, he makes the claim that we were so committed to argument that even in... And he, and he proves it in the Gemara once in a while, even when there was no argu, uh, alternative opinion, then the rabbis created the alternative opinion. Because the alternative opinion refines your thinking. Did you once uh, teach that in yeshiva you were supposed to be at the end of yeshiva to take over the other person's I didn't. I told a story about that. You that's that right. Poor, right. I told a story about yes. that. Yes. And there's. Well, I'll tell you the tradition. So Rabbi Chaim of Alojin, who was a student of the Dona Vilna, he taught on a passage in Pirkei The passage is like this: Hevei mit abek ba'afar raglehem. Now, the avak, avak means dust, and afar means dust. So the normal translation of this passage is, you should wallow in the dust of their feet. Their meaning your teachers. So you should sit, you know, in, in complete submission. Rav Chaim Volozhin says, no. I mean, Lithuanian. Mit abek melashon vaye avek ish imo. And Jacob, Jacob, struggled. Struggled battled with the angel. So, so Chaim Valojan reads it very pointedly. It's incumbent upon you to engage in a battle with your teachers. This is called the battle of Torah. Milcham Tashel Torah. Wow. Okay, understand how liberating it is? This is what it means to grow up in, in an, where you didn't have an authority, central authority and a pope who said and a chief rabbi who said this is it. You grew up in a place where there was an argument a big midrash. A different type of culture. Yes. Yeah, yeah, the, yes, but the authority was a final authority in terms of practice. I once, this, I, at, a, at a phase in my life where I was experiencing some questions, so my rabbi, I was, in, I was a hill of the Rotary Columbus on my own, so one day <coughs> I get a call from my office and, and I lift up the phone and it's Rabbi Wahlberg. Rabbi Wahlberg, come on, I'm here in Columbus here. So he comes to see me. He might think of the the Borough Park, and, and he also was my teacher of. Uh, Told us Midrash at Yeshiva University, and we had a long talk. And he ended the talk by saying the following: "It was really brilliant, and it was sort of, sort of right on. It was a good, you know, it was a good sort of homiletic insight." We put on the film, right? And we noticed the following: 
that the, there are four paragraphs in the Tefillin. In the head Tefillin, each one of the paragraphs is in a separate compartment. And you, you, you know what a head Tefillin It looks like there are, there are lines on the head Tefillin that isolate the four compartments. And the arm Tefillin is all on one part, and it's all in one compartment. So he said, remember, Judaism has a great tolerance for diversity of thought, multiplicity of ideas. That's the nature of Jewish, Jewish thinking and Jewish theology and Jewish learning. And while at the same time there's a commitment to acting in the United States. Is that on account of the lack of there being uh, leadership or just on account of the fact that how Judaism... Well, it, I'm not talking about the lack of leadership. I'm talking about the lack of... Look, it promotes discussion and argument. Yes, that's, that's what I mean. And even in the halachic domain, we have a minority opinion yeah. quoted in the source and with an explanation that another generation of sages may come who could liberate that minority opinion and restruct, re-resurrect it. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's unheard of. I mean, even the Supreme Court, you know, it decides that's a decision. It does record the minority opinion, and, and there may be some legal ramifications for that. But, but, but this is very, this is very, you know, sort of bold in, in this regard. You know, and, and when I talk about authority, yes, you know, we talk about authority, it, 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 it's different. Having a central... See, think about it this way, even in terms of today or beliefs and opinions. We have... Someone once said, I think it's correct, we have dogmas. We don't have dogmatics. And the distinction would be the following. is believe in God. But what the nature of that is, that's open to discussion. Mashiach. Pages and pages of discussion. What it is? I mean, in the Gemara itself, let alone in medieval forms. The Gemara itself. We're, you know, so that's, that's such a good distinction. And it allowed us to thrive. In fact, I think, you know, when I, when I think about it, it's one, of the, it's one of the characteristics of being a Jew that we can bring to modern culture. With our heads up, you know, with a sense of pride. That, that because underlying this multiple arguments is also a degree of tolerance. Or consequentially, there's tolerance. Because you have to listen to the other opinion. Wow, that's interesting. And understand, by the way, in the sense of that, you know, you know, the Gemara says, why do why do we why do we decide like Beit Hillel and not like Beit Shammai? Right. So it gives a number of reasons, and one of the reasons that it gives is that they quoted the opinion of Shammai before their own. So that sounds like they were modest. It's true, but in addition to being modest. What it means in terms of this interpretation is their argument is a better argument because they consider the opposite argument before they deliver their own decision, right? And that's always right. I, I had there was a professor of law at UCLA. This is maybe I told the story when um, very very famous lawyer wrote, wrote wrote the textbook on copyright. So I know his son. In fact, his son became more observant, so one summer his son was studying in Yale Law School, came home, his father said, would I learn Gemara with him? So then he told me the following story, that in his home, when they wanted something special, so they called, you know, they called the family council, not only did you have to present the argument for what you wanted, you also had to present the argument against what you wanted. And only if you could do that and then and come forward with your argument, you know, would you know something of that sort? It was a tough house to grow up in, but I understand, you know, what this, but but you know what? There was something, there was something Jewish about how about what what was going on. We have a tradition that's based on machlok, the absence of criticism. 
which is a characteristic of even in contemporary Jewish life there's, there's sort of a, a, a resistance or a worry a worry, a sense of threat about criticism uh, marks the decline of Jewish culture you know, I feel I, I, I wrote a line here I, I, it's too big a price to pay you know, it would be very sad if the most creative Jewish achievement in the modern period which is the creation of the state of Israel would lead to the closing of the Jewish mind in other words, if politics overtakes our capacity to think, now the politics has to go on, and politicians, by the way, I don't expect politicians to, to revel in machloket. You know, politicians want you to think the way they uh, they're not. You know, I don't expect that of them. I respect them, but I want them to have a respect for this cultural dimension of who we are as Jews, cultural religious dimension that allows us to thrive and allow a political structure to live side by side with a cultural, with, with a dynamic culture. That's what I aim at. So why shouldn't there be a Supreme Court of rabbis in Israel? All right, well, it's a problem. No, because who's leading the Jewish uh, religious ideas? Uh, who's the rabbi? It's not, it's not one no, the chief rabbi? No, well, yes, but the chief rabbi is not the recognized leader Sorry, of all, no. and you have the Haredi. It's very hard. It's very hard today. It's very hard. But you know what? You know what? I, 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 I think that rather than bemoan, you know, you know, divisions, it depends what divisions are. Divisions and ideas are, t- are, are part of who we are. Divisions, if we, st- if we hate one another, that's, very, that's bad. So there are two types of divisions. If the fact that we have different opinions leads us to hate one another, we're in real trouble. And, and that's, 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 that's a concern. You're right. That's a concern. Right? So anyway, I want to move on. Why? Because it's not just this wonderful stuff about creative culture. You know who knew this, by the way? Who knew this idea of creative culture and exile? Uh, this, was, this was the stuff that Edward Said wrote about. The greatest sort of Palestinian intellectual antagonist to Zionism. In fact, my, psycholo- my, my two-bit psychology is that one of the reasons he hated Zionism so much is because the Jews betrayed him. He understood, he, he worked with Jews all his life at Columbia. He was a great literature professor. He wrote about Joseph Conrad. And, and that's you know, part of the theme. All right? The Jews were the people of exile. All of a sudden they decided to go national on him. You know, we are supposed to be, for him, you know, the, the, the korban, the sacrifice in the world. We should, we should maintain the purity of who we are in a spiritual, non-national, uh, intellectual world to represent this ideal that he, uh, you know, while every other people, including his own, would, would, right, would, would, be, would have their national enterprise. I, you know, people don't necessarily accept, I mean, I, I never said this. Thing. But all right, anyway, all right. Is so, Bob Pollock? What? Yes, yes, I know Bob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, a little bit, yes. All right. So I want to get now to this last point, although there's a lot, uh, which is the the suffering part. And here, the person who had the greatest insight into Jewish, into the Jewish contribution to civilization, was none other than Nietzsche, because Nietzsche said that the natural way for people to be is for power to rule. And power is good, and the absence of power is bad. And in fact, all sorts of terms. I mean, I, 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 I'm sorry. I mean, I have, I, I, I have a lot to say about this. What, what, what Nietzsche says is that the Jews developed something called a slave morality, 
And they were so successful that they even projected a God who was compassionate, filled with pity for the vulnerable in society. We know, he says, that the people who are blessed and who we should look up to are the people who win. God said, I'm with the people who lose. Uh, I have a quote here. Let me read you the quote. Conscience, says Nietzsche, is an invention of the slave. Jews were born slaves and they succeeded in in, in changing the meaning of good and bad. In master morality, you don't have this, no, no, I can do it. In master morality, good is powerful, bad is weak. In slave morality, good is care, concern, compassion, love and pity, and bad is humiliation, domination, repression. Nietzsche said, all the world's efforts against the aristocrats, the mighty holders of power, are negligible by comparison with what has been accomplished against those classes by the Jews. Only the Jews dare to suggest something that ran counter to master morality. The Bible was written from the perspective of the oppressed and the disenfranchised. That's our clarion call, our mission, our purpose. It was a revolution. Nobody knew this. You know the, you know the line in the Haggadah, V'ilu lo hotzi ha-kodesh prochu in avadim hayim. At the end, V'ilu lo hotzi ha-kodesh prochu ta'votenu mitzrayim harayanu v'anenu v'nei v'anenu m'shubedim hayinu v'farobu mitzrayim. And if, our, if, if God hadn't taken us out of Egypt, then we and our children and our children's children would still be slaves to Pharaoh Egypt. I would listen to me. What do you mean? We'd still be slaves? Well, I'm not with slaves. It means that if God wouldn't have taken us out of Egypt, nobody would have known that slaves should be free. Nobody knew this. Right? The way the world was constructed, masters, look at it, throughout most of history, masters owned land, they were aristocrats, and people worked for them. They were the poor, you know, shlemiels who didn't have power. And they were sort of relegated to be servants. And everything, you know, that was Pharaoh's scheme. We decided to slay Pharaoh. We decided. I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's the vision. That's the mission. How, why? What was the revolutionary insight that we brought with us that allowed us to move ahead with this moral claim that God hears the victims. I mean God hears the victims. In all in, in other societies, God was the God of the king. I mean, right, Pharaoh, you look at it, it's so often we said that God is the God of the victims. Anochi, Avadim. The question is well, I'm the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. The house of bondage. So the question is, I know that the land of Egypt is the house of bondage. Why do we need the phrase, the house of bondage? It could have said, I'm the Lord your God, I took you out of Egypt. The house of bondage. Why? Why did it say that? Can you tell me why? To, to tell us what to tell us about God. That, that God is the freer of slaves. And you know what? So Rabbi Soloveitchik said that there's no statement in the Torah that, or no context narrative or, or, or statement that doesn't have a normative dimension that's not, not related to a commandment. So it solves the problem of Anoki being a commandment. What's the commandment from a statement? I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. Well, the commandment is bondage is wrong. And therefore, you you must redeem slaves. You, your mission is to redeem the slaves. 
In other words, if God redeemed us, like it's also a notion of imitat, we have to imitate God, and halakha bedrachah. So in other words, this is, this is it. Right? In other words, the, the central mitzvah of Tiet Mitzrayim, the, the solution to the puzzle, why did God send us into Egypt? God sent us into Egypt so we would experience slavery, we would be the stranger, we would internalize the, that experience, and then we would bring to the world the message that slaves have to be free. And, and that's, that's not something that's relegated to a particular time. We're still fighting this. And, I, and so, by, by the way, what, under, what allowed us to reach this revolutionary conclusion that humans, all humans should be free and that all humans are equal? What Torah teaching changed the way we looked at the world? You know, it's in, it's in racial. Also, no, what, what, what teaching? That every human being is a creator of nothing? So I take it. I remember I had this insight. Yeah, it's not a great insight because I think it's written and everybody knows this. But I was when we were in Rome, my wife, Dorian and I, some years ago. So we, we, the same day we toured the forum, the Roman forum, and then we went across the street to the Roman Colosseum. So I said to her, it's very strange. The forum was the center of the gener- where Roman law was generated, right? The legal principles of Western civilization. Across the street was a center of human depravity. It was at the end of the Roman, uh, of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Gladiators, gladiatorial, you know, people ripping each other. What? I said, what didn't they know of the Romans? They didn't know that all human beings were created in the age of God. Not only that, but you have a quote from Howard Fisk that the, the Jews were undermining the economy of antiquity. Because the Jews were perceived as people who wanted to free slaves. That threatened the whole way in which the structure of the economy worked in the whole world until until the modern period. It's not something you know. Oh, everybody. Nobody knew this. Nobody knew this. That every human being deserves to be free in this way. And it's still you know I still am motivated by this because there's a lot of slavery. You know we, we tend not to pay attention to the fact that there's a lot of slavery in the world. Different forms of slavery. If you read Nicholas Kristof, you know. Uh, Every week, you, you have a few examples of human slavery, uh, right? So you know that there's still a lot of work that we need that we need to do, and in terms of and in terms of general of understanding of how we treat other people. So, all right. So, so then becomes a question, and unfortunately, I don't have you know it's, a, it's another discussion, but I will give it to Russia, take the Russia table, Russia talking. Right? The question is, okay, you're a big shot. Tell you the Torah is there to undermine slavery. That's the purpose of exile. It gives us experience. It's a central mission. It's, it's, not, it's who we are. But the Torah itself, right, articulates laws of slavery. Right. So in your sheets, and you can go through this. You, my claim is the following: that the Torah is a systematic weaning of the people away from slavery, because in no other legal, uh, you may be missing the case. That's the problem. Right. right. But first of all, if you kill a slave. It's a capital crime. In Babylonia, under ancient Babylonian law, it was wrong to kill a slave. It was a, it was an economic crime. And even in Russia, by the way, you know, in other words, it's not clear that murder always was considered to be a capital crime. You murder someone, you're 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 somehow taking away a productivity. If you look at things from a material perspective, you know, and and, and that's. And, and, and compensation may be a, a much more practical solution because what happens 
you know, if someone gets murdered, and what do you do? You bring the person to trial, but the person who lost the worker never got compensated. It, wouldn't you think it's much better to compensate the person rather than take the right? And, uh, so, so you know, you can make, you can turn the argument around. But all of this, uh, and not only that, but the, the law in the bar so far reaching. If the slave runs away, you're not permitted to return the slave to his owner. They were dealing with the reality of the time. Yeah. Everyone had to There's no way of... And, and and so, all right, we'll say something about that in a moment. What I want to say about that law is that the civil war was fought over that law. In other words, when I say that this is, you know, revolutionary, it doesn't mean, by the way, that the Jews were exemplary necessarily, but it means that they're in this legal tradition. There's something, something about our character that developed, that... Infused within us a sensitivity to the vulnerable. It's repeated again and again and again. is connected always. Remember the excess, you were a stranger. Remember the vault, remember the widow. Remember, right? And Shabbos. That's what's so striking. The difference between here, this is I am going to say in BJ, so don't get upset. <laughs> the difference between Shabbos in, in, in Shmoke. In the Ten Commandments is repeated once in Exodus, once in Exodus and once in Devarim. So the difference is that in, in Exodus the reason for keeping Shabbos is to remember that God is the creator. In Deuteronomy, when it repeats the Ten Commandments and the commandment regarding Shabbos, it's changed. It's different. It says the reason for keeping Shabbos is to remember that we were that, and we were that the Exodus and you say it in Kish. A remembrance of the creation of the world. The remembrance of the Exodus from Egypt. Okay? In the passage that, that you have, in the in remembering the Exodus from Egypt, so there's a there's a phrase. Because the, the, the basic commandment is repeated. To rest, to work six days, rest on the seventh day, and again it says, but, but then it says, you, your, your, uh, your son, your daughter, your wife, whatever, then it is. So that your manservant and your maidservant may rest as you do. Now, I said, what, the first time I was sort of aware of this, I said the following. When your manservant and maidservant rests, as you do on Shabbos, when they go back to work on Sunday, they're no longer the same person. And that, that's what the Romans understood. Because you can't possibly give the person the sense, right, a little bit. They know already that they have value as human beings. They sit, Kamocha. Bahapareata, Kamocha. Wow. So it's very powerful. So, there, you have a tradition that's moving with Selma Kim. The Selma Kim is the guiding principle there, I think. Moshe Greenberg, who was a teacher of mine, he wrote an article about how this idea of Selma Kim changed the laws in Mishpatim. Because if you read the Code of Hammurabi, you have similar laws, but the outcome is different. What made the difference in the outcome in, men, in those laws? The fact that we had a principle that every human being is created in God's image. And he goes, he goes through systematically enough. I mean, there's an argument about this. But, but nevertheless, it's such a, it's a wonderful insight. So we were slaves in Egypt in order for us to develop an outlook that put us at the forefront of, of freeing the slaves. Okay. Now, and promoting the notion of equality in society. So exile is about learning to be dedicated to the eradication of slavery. Human freedom is established 
as a sacred goal. Now, the last thing is the Rambam. I don't, I don't know if you have. Do you, uh, let me see the sheets that you got. I'll show you. And then, and then I will what? Yes, yes, yes. Middle. Yeah, middle of the second page. Okay. You want to read the? I'm sorry. I, I forgot your name. Uh, Shelley. Shelley. Yeah. 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 Punishment for unjust measures is more severe than the punishment for immorality. All right, so, all right, so, the, so there's a passage above, there's a verse above. In Leviticus 19, it ends by saying, you should have scales of justice, you should have measures of justice. I'm the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. So the Midrash, the Sifra on the Leviticus says, how, what's the relationship between scales of justice and leaving Egypt? All right, so this is what, this begins, what the Ramam says now. So he says, that the punishment for for faulty measures, right, is greater than the punishment for immorality. It, it's a problematic statement, but what he means here is that violating some of the incest laws is a personal violation, and the, uh, violate, violating the um, uh, weights and measures is a violation against someone else. Okay, I, I don't. I don't understand this fully, but, but I want to go with the idea that the violation of weights and measures is severe. Go ahead. Why? Uh, for the latter is a sin against God only. Right. The, the one on the back, that's morality, sin against God. It's not yeah. a, against another person. Or against one's fellow man. Okay, go ahead. And then? If, if one denies the binding <laughs> character of the commandment relating to measures, he denies, in effect, the exodus from Egypt, which was the basis of the commandments. But if one acknowledges the commandment relating to measures, he thereby acknowledges the exodus from Egypt, which rendered all the commandments possible. Okay. What's the sin against measures exactly? It means you're, you're in the marketplace and you have a full scale. So, scale. Right? So, so, and then, what's the problem saying? What does it mean to, to experience the Exodus? The Exodus was where the marketplace was where slaves. Right? There, there was no equality in the marketplace. There wasn't. There were no honest weights and measures. It was all weighed against you. So the outtake for us of the experience of of, of Egypt is the obligation. See, it's not the obligation to make sure that we maintain a sense of honesty. In the, in the public sphere, that we're honest business people. I mean, I think that's a great, a great Musar here. It's amazing in a way. So that exile, the experience of Egypt, was intended to impress upon us, so that when we emerge from a place where there is no equal weights and measures, that we become dedicated in principle, and that how do we know that someone believes this? This is so wonderful. How do I know that you believe in the exodus from Egypt? Not because every day you down three times a day and says, and you quote, I'm the Lord your God of the God of the Egypt, do I believe in you? Know, how do we know? How, do we, how, how can we tell that you believe? Honest in business. Yeah. If you're honest, if you feel an obligation to be honest in business, that reflects the fact that you are an exodus person. Exodus person is a character. It's a character judgment. It's not a belief judgment. It's not an assertion. It's not an articulation. I believe in the end. You know, and then you fight with someone. You're, you're a heretic because you deny that the Jews were in Egypt. 
So the Jew, so in other words, it, it's a very sophisticated argument that Ramon was making. Yes, no, we were in Egypt history. It's not a historical question. It's not about events. Of course, you're gonna, uh, archaeologists will get involved. Not, not interesting. What, the reason for the Torah is not to give you proof that it happened. The reason for the Torah is to change who you are as a person. That's what the Torah is about. Now, it doesn't mean that you, know, you, you, you then say it didn't happen. But, but it means that whether it happened or not, becomes, from the Raman's perspective, what you would say is a second-order question. It's not a first-order question. The first-order question is, how do you behave? Do you show that through and through the Exodus is in you? Then I know that you've somehow taken something from, from Jewish life. But this is summer. That we as a people were given a, a rich experience that included suffering, but also included the capacity you know, in the story that we tell, because we didn't suffer all the time, but we kept on retelling this story to remind us that we had a special mission, that we had some, we had something worth preserving, and that that this mission was not something natural. Right? Nietzsche was natural. Nietzsche argued in terms of the the order of nature. Nature indicates that the powerful survive. I mean, he was good, uh, you know, sort of Darwinian in that. We argued against the linear sort of psychology. That you know, that, that power is not necessarily the, the, the ingredient that guarantees survival. In fact, it's not entirely true. There are these these evolutionary um, sci- uh, psychologists or whatever who've made arguments that the people who survive were the ones who learned how to cooperate with one another. That's an important that's an important dimension in a study of human culture and society. That's interesting. Because it wasn't the person who had, you know, because the fact is, I could be not that powerful and you could be not that powerful, but together, woo, it's not about power, we'll, we'll, we'll be able, we'll learn how, we'll know how to make it. You know? And also, there is, a, there is this question of, of trickery. You know, we, we, you develop alternative modes. So the conclusion is that the Torah introduced a subversive um, outlook, an outlook that that created a, a community that worked against the aggregation of power in this central power to keep the central authority honest. Very important. And in antiquity, the story that we tell is that we undermine the great civilizations, the Babylonian civilization and the Egyptian civilization, that were not just. And that our mission was to stand for justice in the world. That means standing with compassion and humility in, in, in this world. So Lech Lecha, this is here I quoted an Israeli writer in the first line. Lech Lecha means you as a Jew should leave the normal understandings of nationalism. Your notion of nationalism is one that's linked not only to being in the place, but also outside the place. It's not just the land, but it's also values. It's not just sovereignty, right? it's also a sense of dignity. You need both. And the dignity comes from the way you live, from your character, and not just from your control. So Lechlecha is read by him, leave the normal understandings of Arziu, of nationalism. Leave it, right? You are in the homeland and not in the homeland simultaneously. Interesting. And think about the Jewish people. It helps solve the problem, which is what's the relationship between the diaspora and Israel? Are the people who live in Israel superior to the people who live in the diaspora? So you could say, from a religious perspective, they have 
potentially more mitzvot that they can fulfill. Okay, that's true. So they have a greater obligation in that regard. But superiority is not is not the it's not the right word. It's not the right word. There's, there's, it, what it is is there's added value that you can get. Okay? But is there can you can you create <coughs> can you create are, are you fully uh, sort of um, uh, empowered to create Jewish life wherever you live? Absolutely. With a little again, it may be it may be that it's easier to do an energy survey. Yes. But it also may be that it's harder to do. I mean you, you, you see the honest discussion requires that you that you see both sides. It's harder in many ways because you're lacking that element of being a stranger. Yes, okay. Being a misfit. All right, so, the, all right, so, all right. But on the other hand, I want to say something else. All right, so I want to say the other side, which is if you are an Orthodox Jew living in Eretz Israel, you don't have to put on a black suit. But you don't have to separate yourself from the people you live with, you're one of them. Except those who want to separate themselves. But they don't want to be in the modern world. That's why they wear those clothes. But if you want to be a modern, in other words, here, here in the United States, it's, I mean, you look around, you see people develop, they, they need more, more separation. In order, right? Kadosh means separate. Yeah. All right. So, but, in the, all right, but then, in the land itself, there are, there are other consuming, assimilatory aspects yes. that take over. So, I'm calling for a dynamic relationship that recognizes the pluses and minuses of each Experience yeah. and doesn't deny the pluses of the exilic experience on the grounds that it was just a history of suffering. Listen, it was just a history of suffering. So how come? Well, where, where did we find all the time to be so creative? I mean, that's the, that's in fact, you have to always ask yourself. This is what Selo Baron called the great Jewish historian, the lachrymose theory of Jewish history. That there's a theory of Jewish history that we were crying all the time. It couldn't be that if we were crying all the time. Then our, the ink would have run on all the pages of the books that we wrote. And we wrote many books. Even the books, and even the books were burned. We wrote them and we celebrated them. Right? And just a yeah, final point about burning the books. This year, in Russia, around Rosh Hashanah time, in the, uh, what's the Italian word? In the Italian, in the square in Rome. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. It's where Bruno was burned. Anyway, whatever. It's where the Talmud was burned in 1553. There's now a plaque. Right? So the Talmud was burned, but the fact is that we're still in the Talmud. That's the book that carries us. We lived as a people because we were committed to ideas. In Spain, they called the Bible Makkasha, the temple, Mikdash. Because they understood that the book was our homeland. 